Very quickly, I want to review you know, some, just some main points from the first four chapters, and I will go through, through this very quickly. In chapter one, one of the things that we tried to point out is how God showed himself to be trustworthy, that he had remained true to his word, and that the Israelite circumstances that we see in the beginning pages of Exodus you know, are exactly as God had foretold Abraham. And so God is trustworthy. You can count on what he says. You know, he will do what he has promised. And when he says this is what it will be, that is what it will be as God foresees. Another point we brought out in chapter 1 is the fact that God is a rewarder of the faithful throughout time. And that is particularly illustrated and exemplified in the Hebrew midwives who placed their complete trust in God at the risk of their own lives, even though there had been civil edicts, decrees made, you know, that put them uh, at risk to that authority. But they trusted God and they made the tough decision and God blessed them for making that right decision. Chapter 2. What we see is God's hand involved in what unfolds in the early days and months and years of Moses' life. And the fact that we see God's hand was at work in the faith of Moses' parents. Parents who took actions in spite of fear of what could have transpired, which was happening all around them. But also you see God's hand in the fact that you, you have God using the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. Of all places, a Hebrew boy would end up was in the very household of Pharaoh himself, the one who decreed the death of those children. Later on, as, as Moses grows up, he's about 40 years old, and he tries to take matters into his own hands. And what we learn is that wasn't the time, that wasn't the place, and that was not the means that God had in mind in delivering the sons of Israel. You know, it, you know, God was going to deliver them from imposed labor, but it wasn't at the time that Moses picked, nor in the way that Moses chose to do it. And yet God will still use Moses. You know, Moses needs to grow up a little more. And at the right time, God will bring him back. Also in chapter 2, we see that God was fully aware of Israel's situation, of Israel's plight. And it talks about how God remembered the covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham. And obviously, God you know, just didn't forget it. But the point of God remembering the Abraham covenant was the fact it related to the timing that had arrived for God to establish the nation of Israel in the land that he promised. And so the time was right. And in that sense, he was remembering the covenant and it's going to come to fruition. Chapter 3, and we see God choosing the time and the place to reveal himself to Moses. Moses didn't pick that opportunity. That, you know, that was presented to him. And, and, and so God chooses to do that. You know, we know that he's about 80 years old at this time in his life when God chooses to, to speak to him you know, at this time and in this way. And one of the things I tried to bring out as the class was kind of come to a close is the fact is what we see how God reveals himself. And the fact that God revealed himself as a living, personal God 
who is compassionately faithful. What God says to Moses in, in that conversation brings out those attributes about God. That God is alive and God is personal and God is compassionate and God is faithful. That's all you know, brought out in his conversation with Moses. Now, as you know, you know Moses tried to back out of the, 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 the job that God was calling to do. And what we see is God is able and God did help Moses overcome all the inadequacies, all the defects that Moses saw in, in his inability to carry out God's mission. Once again, as we're reading, I want us to try to focus not only on the facts and the unfolding events, but see, okay, God in that event. Yeah, and whether it's something very obvious and clear or whether it's more in the behind the scene. And so here in this conversation, God is basically you know, choosing Moses to do something and he shows Moses that whatever you throw at me, you know, it is, you know, I'm going to make you able to do the job I called you to do. And he, and he does. He carries out that mission well in the end. Chapter 4, really didn't get to you know, touch much on that last week, but chapter 4, two points I wanted to bring out. One is the, this idea of calling you know, Israel his firstborn. Here in chapter 4, verse 22, it is the first time that God calls the nation his firstborn. It's not the first time the word is used in the book of Genesis, but it's the first time it's used in reference to the people of God. And, and the significance of that, I would suggest to you, is this, that it indicates how God now has elevated the nation to this preeminent standing before God. He has chosen them, and he says, I am making you my firstborn. And so you've got this, exalt, this exalting to this preeminent uh, situation, and as, as a result, they are a rightful heir to God's inheritance. And of course, that is used in a reference to also communicating this to uh, Pharaoh. But God says, Israel is my firstborn. You know, you need to let him go. And the last point I want to bring out in the, in the fourth chapter is that whole scene where Moses is heading back to, you know, to Egypt with his family, but he gets stopped. What stops him along the way? He gets stopped in route. You know, particular event. Very similar you know, you know, to another you know, uh, man of faith. You know, similarly, this, you know, you know, this happened to him. And that is you've got, you got a, a wrestling going on. Who's wrestling here in chapter 4? Moses and who? God. And so you have along the way, you've got, you know, we're, not, you know, we're not told much about it, you know, uh, but uh, it says it came about when they you know, were they lodged at a particular place that the Lord met him and sought to put Moses to what? Death. death. Yes. Sought to put Moses to death. And what was it all about? Why was God seeking to put Moses to death? The whole thing was about what one thing. Circumcision or uncircumcision. Who wasn't circumcised? Moses. It wasn't Moses. Moses wasn't. Moses was circumcised. Who wasn't circumcised? 
son, sons of Moses. And of course, Zipporah you know, intervenes and circumcised. And, and, and of course, he says, you, you, know, you are you know, a bridegroom of blood to me because of this. And so what do you think the significance? Uh, interesting thought. What is the significance of God wrestling, seeking to put Moses to death over circumcision? His son being circumcised or not? What's the significance of that? Okay, it's a covenant, right? A covenant that was made how far back? In the days of whom? Abraham. So a covenant that God made with Abraham, and that covenant was to be kept for how long? Yeah, you know, you know throughout their generations, and it's not going to change until God's true firstborn comes into the world. All right? And not, so it's not going to change until that occasion. And so you've got Moses who's been called to carry out God's mission, you know, you know, on the behalf of God's people, and Moses' sons are not circumcised. Is that a big deal? Obviously, it's a big deal. And you think of this idea, if, if, if Moses is going to be a faithful servant, a faithful leader of the Hebrew nation, of the descendants of Abraham who are, on, who are in a covenant relationship and therefore to, to show that covenant relationship, you know, every male must be circumcised. So can God's chosen leader go back and his sons not be circumcised? No. And so you have Moses' sons are required likewise to be circumcised you know, I think is to, to indicate the importance of God's faithful servant walking in all the ways of God. So Moses can't just ignore something that he hadn't done. He was Hebrew. You know, he was not Egyptian. He was not Midianite. You know, he, 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 had, he was circumcised on the eighth day. You know, his parents would have made sure that was done. And Moses knew who he was, but when his sons were born, Moses hadn't done that. And God stopped them and fought with God, was seeking to, to put Moses to death. Because that covenant is not to be set aside. And so Moses needed to take it very seriously. If he's going to be God's servant, give this great leader you know, of faithfulness and righteousness and obedience, you know, the people cannot find out that he has sons that are not circumcised. Because what, you know, how, would that impact, how would that influence, how would that impact the nation? Well, it wouldn't go well. <laughs> yeah. And you think of how, you know, and you think the series of that, and you carry that. It's not that it's all the same situation, but you think about the idea of you know Paul and Timothy in the in preaching the gospel to Jews. Yeah. Now it wasn't required by the covenant of Christ, but to have the, the best possible influence, you know, to a, you know, you know, for Timothy. You know, who was of Hebrew lineage, you know, as well as Greek, but he was of Hebrew lineage, for him to have the best possible influence, and people knowing he's, you know, he's got a Greek father, you know, 
Timothy was circumcised for the benefit uh, of his impact and influence of others. And so how much more so you go back to when the law is, is, or the covenant of Abraham is in place and is required of all Hebrews, how much more important it is that God's servant must be faithful in all his ways as he leads his people. Any other thoughts or closing comments perhaps you, know, you, know, you would make before we get into chapter 5? Okay, Jonathan. There's a lesson here that might be worth pointing out in terms of being uncircumcised. God will contend with anyone who's uncircumcised. That is, um, particularly an uncircumcision in the heart. And so there will come a time when he will actually say all Israel, the whole nation, had become uncircumcised in heart. They're cutting things, but they weren't um, doing the, the will of the Lord. And uh, it was true of the Jews in the New Testament days as well, as Stephen said. Um, and it can be true uh, of us if we're not careful. That's a good point. Because, you know, you know the, the Lord in the writings of Paul speaks of how, you know, we as God's people now through him are spiritually circumcised. Our hearts must be circumcised. Yeah. And, and so... Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And we, we are the spiritual Israel today. And if we're, you know, we're going to be faithful servants of, as God's people, you know, God does not allow you know, uncircumcision to be ignored. Excellent application there. Anything else? All right, chapter 5. You know, okay, and so would you have... I want to read just the last few verses of chapter 4 where it says, Then Moses and Aaron went... And assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord has spoken to Moses. And he then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel. And that he had seen their affliction. Then they bowed low and worshipped. It's important for us to see that reaction there because that reaction is not going to be the same later on, even our study this evening. And so after, after they have spoken to the people, they've gotten this you know, just very favorable reception you know, from, what, you know, from what they have said and what they've done. Now Moses and Aaron must face Pharaoh. And, now, and imagine this. You know, you're going, you, you, you've got to go and you've got to stand before the president of the United States of America, one of the, you know, supposed to, you know, supposedly we're one of the strongest countries in the world, you know, you know, and, you, and you compare that where Egypt standing in its day, Pharaoh, one of the strongest countries in the world, and you've got to stand before this very powerful individual and say, you need to let my people go, and this is them. And it's a people, you know, estimates in, 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 in a couple million you gotta, you got to let them go. Yeah. That would not be an easy task, would it? But that's the task that you know, Moses and Aaron are called to do, that God sends them. Go to Pharaoh, this very powerful man, and that's what, exactly what they do. They began the mission you know, to carry out God's will. And so they say to, say to them, the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, let my people go that they may, they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, remember the word Lord, here's the word Yahweh, Jehovah. You know, and he's saying he is the God of Israel and they are his people. 
and he is worthy to be worshipped. And so the, first, the request here early on in letting the people go was to let them go to worship. And it does not have the tone early on. Okay, we're going to leave all together and never come back. That, that wasn't the tone of the request. Now, that's what gonna, how it's going to end because that was God's plan. But initially, he just says, just let, let them go to worship their God. And you think about that idea. This Yahweh, the Jehovah, is a God that is to be worshipped. And he is to be worshipped with sacrifices. And he is a God that is to be heeded. And you see the, the significance of them putting on that in verse 3. When he says, you know, you, let them do this. You know, the Hebrews God has met with us. Let us go three days uh, a, a journey into the wilderness so we can make these sacrifices or else... Pestilence or the sword will come upon us. And so, you know, they're trying to press upon Pharaoh how serious this is. But, you know, what, you know, what does, you know, you know, what does Pharaoh say to their request? Who is God? Who is Jehovah? Who is this Yahweh? You know, what, what, that's this is one of your questions. What, what does that suggest about the heart of Pharaoh? Pharaohs generally you know, had the tendency to see themselves of that. And so he, he is seeing himself as someone equally as powerful. What else do you think? What else does this say about the heart of Pharaoh? Huh? Okay, he doesn't care. You know, there's an, you know, definitely an attitude issue here. Uh, perhaps you say, what? Good point. Yeah, if, if you know they're in the land, they're in Pharaoh's land. You know, he is he you know he is in a sense their god. He is taking care of them. So why do they need to go and worship another god? Uh, and you just, you think about that idea of how he says he says who is God? Um, did he know God? Let me ask you that. No. It's a reasonable question. Jehovah didn't, I mean, Pharaoh did not know Jehovah. He did not know God. You know, and so, and so that's, you know, so him asking is not necessarily such a bad thing. It's what he goes on to say that it really says about his attitude. And so what we find is, okay, he doesn't know God, and he then stubbornly chooses to remain ignorant. So that's what transpires here. God, this is the God of the Hebrews. He says, well, who is he? He says, I don't know him. And then he says, and basically, I don't care to know him. You know, I, you know and so I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to obey him. I'm not going to let the people go. So he, he refuses to consider at all the requests of the people, of people who are wanting to obey their God. You know, and so in a sense, he, he doesn't see that he needs to submit to him at all. Once again, you know, you, you know how, how the Pharaohs looked at themselves in, in, in this time in the ancient world. But you think about what the New Testament says to us about God and people's knowledge of it. Romans 1.20 tells us you know, that God's revealed himself uh, in a couple ways there. And as a result of those two evidences, he says, what is the state of man? 
in regard to knowing God. We, we are without excuse, yes. We're without excuse. Were those evidence present in the time of, ex, of the book of Exodus? Yes. So, on the same par, Pharaoh was without excuse to know there is a God who is creator and whose, whose nature is of, of divine omnipotence. He was without excuse. Nathan. Something else I just thought of in that instance is the Hebrews, even in Moses, throughout Moses' whole life, Moses was taught about God. Mm-hmm. So that that knowledge of God was around in his kingdom for years. And, I mean, they're just a man in his, you know, being in control of everything, there's no doubt that some way or another, I mean, this is my mind thinking, you would think that he would have heard something, something pertaining to this mm-hmm. this God of the mm-hmm. Israelites, right. you know, throughout his life in some form or fashion. Just whether it's somebody over here and somebody else or something mm-hmm. about that. I just, yeah. you know, it, it could have been kept just that top secret among yeah. the Israelites. Yeah. But it's just when you have millions mm-hmm. to that point, it's something like that. I think would be hard to not know about. Right. And it, could, and it could be he, he may have known something, but he just lumped it in with all the other gods of the day. And so he just kind of just one of many. Yeah. But that's, I think that's an interesting thought to consider. And so you have Pharaoh here. He, he, he has this kind of approach you know, about God. And basically, God's going to answer that question. You know, in the upcoming chapters, the plagues are all about answering Pharaoh's question. Who is God? And God says, well, I'm going to tell you who I am. And I'm going to tell you about the plagues. And at the end, you're going to know who I am. Now, as, as a result of this, you know, you know, the uh, Israelites are already under you know, uh, rigorous imposed labor. They are, they are enslaved to the Egyptians already. And so as a result of this request, you know, Pharaoh has taken this approach and, and basically tells Moses and Aaron, well, you two just need to go back to work like all the others, and so he's going to increase the, the, the rigor, the imposition. He's going to make it harder and worse on the people. And you think about this idea of Pharaoh's uh, preconceptions and Pharaoh's prejudices, how that obscured him from taking any objectivity on his part to consider the situation. So he chose... In the sense, he is choosing to be God's adversary. His approach is basically saying, I am going to oppose God. And I'm going to oppose God's people. If you think, first of all, he talks about how, hey, there's a lot of those Israelites. You know, you know, why are you trying to take them from their labors? And what is this? this is imposed labor of a, a, a growing populace who at this point is large enough to be a, a nation. And they are a nation in number, really. And you think about that labor force. So what would have been a, you know, what would have been a, a motive for not to let go of that labor force? What would have been a motive behind that? You don't have your opposite, your people having to work. 
Okay, yes. Yes, you got free labor, so let's, let's impose on them and not put the Egyptians to work. And, in that kind of, and he does take some of that work away when he makes it harder with the whole straw thing. What else can you think about? About you know, this labor force, they saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to let, let you know, these people leave their work. Yeah so, yeah, so early on it, it talks about how there's a fear of if there is ever a rising up of, of nations against them that this labor force who's been enslaved would join the enemies and fight against them. I think you think, you think about, let's say, you think about a great, you know, you know multi-billion company, you know, uh, and who suddenly its entire labor force is going to be, is going to leave. What's going to happen to that company? It's going to crumble, and all those guys on top are going to lose a lot of what? A lot of money. A lot of power. And I would suggest to you, kind of behind this whole, I think fear is part of it, and I say, okay, much rather they work than my people work, I think that's all part of it. I think greed is part of this as well. Greed, you know, he's not going to, you know, I don't want to let go. I've got, I've got a good thing going in his mind. But, you know, you're going to make it worse. And so he said, okay, we're going to make it harder work. You've you got to look for your own straw, all of that. And so I'm going to suggest to you two things in regard to that. One is, this kind of relates to your, you know, the question there, you know, uh, Pharaoh's intent, making Israelites, you know, you know the brick and making a harder thing. Okay, he says, I'm going to occupy them with more work. And so that means you're going to have to put, you know, you're going to expend, have to expend more energy, expend more time by increasing your hardship, increasing the effort. And so that means I'm going to distract you. I'm going to discourage you away from whom? God. So by increasing the labor and making it harder, and then, and then later on it talks about the despondency of the, of the people, and they're not wanting to listen to, to Moses and Aaron anymore. And so, so his, his, his game plan worked. If I get them distracted and occupied, you know, they're worn out, you know, they have no time, you know, then they'll have no time, no energy left for God. I think, and that's my second point. Yes, and and that was my second point, where it's all it's also going to cause a rift, a disgruntlement to to occur, particularly between the people and God's chosen leaders, the messengers of God, who come in, say, "Hey, this is God's plan. This is what God do go for you." They they they're the, they're the ambassadors to Pharaoh, and then suddenly it goes south for them. And so you think, you know, the idea of dampening, destroying spirits so that they will not believe God's message anymore. Now, is that, does that still happen today? Yes. You know, the agents of the devil still use the same kind of strategies if I can distract them, if I can occupy them, if I can cause disgruntlement, if I can cause a rift, 
I can call, cause people of God to stop listening, to stop believing, to stop trusting, to stop following and serving. Think about the, this made me think of the parable of the soils or the sower. And particularly, you got the two bad soils, you got the rocks and the thorns, and I just lumped them both together in just making the same. Both of them illustrate the idea of seed being deprived, being choked, you know, or, or, or you know, basically, you know, not able to find soil and the rock, whatever. But you think that idea, and that's what Pharaoh's doing here. He is choking the people. You know, that's his intent. If I can choke them enough, they won't listen to what he calls false words. You know, and they won't want to worship God. You know, they, you know, because life's hard. You know, God's made it worse on us. You know, why trust God? Why believe God? It was hard, but now it's harder. So what, so what good is this? It's, it's, it's a work of the devil. And this still goes on today. I think another point is very quickly also, when he talks about, tries to refer to worshiping this God as laziness. The desire to worship God, he says, y'all are just lazy. Lazy, lazy, lazy people you are because you want to worship God. Now, did Egyptians worship? Yes, they worship their gods. So it shouldn't be such an, an odd thing that a people want to worship their God. That's not, that's not a bizarre thing. Even Egyptians worship gods. But yet, this whole, what is being asked of him is, is more than what Pharaoh is willing to agree on. And so he, he refers to worshiping God you know, that the Hebrews want to do you know, as something that's lazy. Is it? Is worship lazy? No. True, genuine worship of God is not lazy. It's actually a choice to do more. That's what worship's about. It's a choice to do more. It's a choice to basically put forth diligent effort. It's not a vacation. Worship is not a vacation. It's a decision to work and put forth effort, energy, time that requires our heart, our mind, and our body. It takes our whole self to worship God. Worship is not a lazy thing. Talk about false words. You know, Pharaoh tries to hint that the words of Aaron Moses are false words, and what a lie that was. The false words are Pharaoh's. When he says, you're being lazy, and says that even when the foreman comes back, hey, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> you know, and they get beaten because they ask this. And he calls them lazy. And so as, as the chapter ends, things have gotten bad. You know, it's, it's gotten worse for the people. And so these worsening circumstances at the very end, you now got Moses' reaction. And what's, you know, what would you say is Moses' reaction at the end of chapter 5? God, what did you do? Yeah, God, you know, you know, what, what have you done? What are you doing? And, and, and by asking those questions... What is he doing? He's questioning God. Now, is that a doubting? You know, maybe. I'm not sure. But clearly these are, these are, these are very kind of 
pointed questions. You know, I think I see it here is Moses is pointing his finger at God. God, you know, you know, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? You know, is he thinking back to his arguments earlier on in the in the wilderness of Midian when he tried to back out of the call? You know, you know, ever he says, ever since I showed up here, he says, it's you know, it's it's just gotten worse for the people. And so you, I think what you you see here is here is circumstances have gotten bad. You know, God had told them. You know, God has said this is going to happen. Back in the early chapter, he said, you know, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Did Moses hear that? Maybe not. Maybe that point didn't sink in as well as it should have. Because the worsening of the circumstance should not be surprising to him. So the question, are these questions kind of an imprecatory complaint? That he's not really doubting, you know, like, is it just he's complaining somewhat, but he's not really doubting God? Or is it, is he suggesting, God, you haven't done what you said you're going to do? And so Moses is really being tested here. This is really a test for Moses, not just for the people. It's a test for Moses. You know, and, you know, did, you, you know, did he take God's warning you know, like he should? Did he listen as well as he should to everything that God had said? Nathan. To me, it almost sort of seems like at this point in time in Moses' life, he still didn't truly know God. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's been taught about him and stuff like that, but even, you know, part of me sort of thinks about even when Moses was questioning him when he was being sent, who do I say who you are mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, that might have been him trying to cop out of, of stuff, but did he truly know God? And, and I don't think he did at this point, as you will see Later towards on. the end of his life, mm-hmm. he's, when he's seen the power of God. He hasn't ever really seen the power of God yet mm-hmm. in his life, and, but he's about to. Yeah. But at this point... He saw time, some evidence of that power in, at the burning bush. And when yeah, the whole, well, yeah, okay, yeah. These are some signs that you can use. But I can see the point you're making where, okay, that is, that, that's small compared to what he's going to do. And I think you have a, a good, a good uh, thought where Moses is having to grow here as well. He grew in the wilderness in Midian. And so, okay, now he's 40 years later. God, okay, now you're, now you're ready for me to use you. you know? and, but still, there is a growing process or learning process. And, but isn't that true for all of us as we come to know God more and more deeply and particularly as we learn God not just simply through reading and discussion but also as we come to know God even better in our applications through life's experiences when we are really put to the test in trusting God you know, and how we have to mature in that way. And so I think this, this, this was a test for Moses and we, we see it. Now, it's interesting, you, at the end of chapter 5, you've got Moses coming back, hey, God, where are you? What are you doing? You know, you know things have gone sour here for, for my, my people. And, and so then God answers him in chapter 6. So that's the answer God gives. And I find it interesting you know, here as he begins off that God first says to Moses, you shall see. 
what I will do to Pharaoh. Where are you, God? And God says, you will see me. Then he goes on to say, you know, what he's going to do, and of course, and how that's going to impact Pharaoh. But I find that very impressive to, well, yeah, God is answering the questions Moses just asked. You know, things are, are, are not good, God. Where are you? We, we thought you were going to deliver us. You're not delivering us right now. And God, and God says, you're going to see. You're going to see me in ways you've never seen me before. And then, he, once again, he re, re, restates the fact and says, I am the Lord. And this is in this small conversation, the first early verses, that, that expression, I am the Lord, in the, verses, in the first six uh, a few verses, four times in a very brief section, God repeats, I am the Lord. He says something. I am the Lord. He says something. I am the Lord. He says something. He says, I am the Lord. Right after, all in the same conversation, he keeps saying this, I am the Lord. And every time he's saying that, he's saying, I am Yahweh. I am. I am. I am. And I am. And what he goes to do here is to show an I am a God of action. And what God does, he says, this is what I've done and this is what I will do. And he starts off saying here, for example, I appeared to Abraham. I established my covenant. You know, I heard their groanings. And he says, I remembered my covenant. This is what I've already done. I'm not a God of of inactivity. I'm not a do-nothing God. I am. I appeared, I established, I heard, I remembered. And then he goes on to say, once again, I am, again, he says, I will bring you out, and I will deliver you from bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. He says, and I will bring you to the land. And he says, and I will give it to you. This is what I've done, and this is what I'm going to do. You will see me, Moses. And so will Pharaoh. And so he basically then charges him, okay, now go back to Pharaoh. <laughs> and you tell him again the same thing you've already told him. And in a sense, of course, he tries to say, why would they listen to me? They didn't, you know, because it's after this, he goes back to the people. The people now, as you notice in verse 9, you know, they didn't listen to Moses this time. See, they, you know, life got hard. Oh, they were so excited at first. They believed. They worshiped God. You know, days later, it's all changed. How fickle they really are. And so that's impacted Moses, you know, you know how, can I, how can I persuade Pharaoh when my own people aren't listening to me? But God says, you go, you do what I've commanded you anyway. It's that simple. You are my messenger, and it's my word. It's the power. It's not your ability. And so God can and God will accomplish what he has planned at the right time. And God wasn't going to, he knew, they're not going to be delivered at the first plague. God knew what would have to happen along the way, you know. 
And chapter, chapter 6 uh, you know, then goes into this genealogy, and the whole point of this genealogy is basically to show where does Moses and Aaron fit in Jacob's family. That's what it's all about, is to show where they fit in the family of God. And so it, talk, it says Reuben, and then Simeon, and then Levi. That's the order. And then it starts talking about Levi's son, and then so forth. And then you come down to Aaron and Moses, how they fit into that. Interestingly, when you're reading the Psalms, and the Psalms that talk about the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah were sons of Izhar, who was a son of Kohath, you know, which is a son of Levi. And so those would be cousins you know, to Moses and Aaron. And so, you know, then you get into chapter 7, where again, God is kind of re, you know, reassuring uh, Moses and Aaron about the mission of going back to, to Pharaoh. He says, you know, and basically, you're going to be my representative to Pharaoh, Moses. You're going to be like a God, and Aaron's going to be your prophet. And so God assures them that, and he says, because this, you know, you're doing this for my host, and the host here is God's people. You know, and, uh, and so, you know, We'll end there. We'll touch very briefly uh, you know, uh, at the end of chapter 7 and get into our next section. Time is up as we really start getting into, you know, uh, as I kind of point out here in the, in the outline, God's object lessons. See, God's going to communicate to Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Hebrews. And he starts off by saying, this plague is not just about punishing you for a sinful attitude, this plague is also about teaching you about the God I am. Thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it.